11. Edith come near us and fell back, moved away unthreatened again, then swept upon us till its icy breathing gripped our throats, and our hearts stood still, and in the silence, one dog whined, behind the sled there stirred the snow anew, and in a moment or two another column threw itself at the sky, and behind us and around, other of these columns rose and moved like spectral dancers under the slate green clouds of the snow-filled sky, no whined, no sound but the low leader of the team howling in utter fear, a dancing blizzard, said Barnes, in an autumn, under his breath, if there had been anything to do, it would have been easier, the Alaskan continued, but to move was not more dangerous than to stay still, in answer to a sign, the Indian started up the dogs again, and we went on, though the road ahead looked like the ice forest of a disordered dream, presently, Without a moment's warning one of the huge snow pillars came rushing straight at us, and I braced myself by the sledge to hold to it if I could, but it swerved before it reached us and ran along beside the trail. About fifty feet ahead it swerved again and cut across the trail, and the extreme edge caught the Indian, picked him up in the air, and threw him at least thirty feet. Was he hurt? cried Hamilton. Not a bit, for there was nothing to fall on but snow. He picked himself up looked carefully at his snowshoes to see that they had not been damaged, and resumed his place at the head of the dogs. What would have become of him if he had been plucked into the middle of the whirlwind is hard to say. I wouldn't have counted on seeing him again anyway, but you never really got caught by any, wouldn't be here talking, if I had, was the reply. But when we come to the track of that whirlwind column, it was a puzzle how to get across. The column, going like a railroad train had cut a gully in the hard snowfall ten feet deep, the sides as clean cut as though done with a knife, or rather with a scoop, because the edge was slightly scalloped all the way along, how did you get across, axes, was the brief reply, we cut through the snow crust and beat down a steep path on both sides of the gully and made the dogs take it, dog harness is strong, but I was afraid of the strain on it that time, how long did the blizzard last, you mean the whirlwinds, yes, Sir, the boy answered, not very long, quarter of an hour, perhaps, then I felt a slight breeze, and at the same moment the columns, bending their heads like grass before the wind, swept to the right of us, and were out of sight in a moment, the Indian yelled and pointed to the left, throwing himself on the ground as he did so, what was it, cried Hamilton, it looked like a solid wall of snow, and before I realized it was common, the storm struck hurled me to the ground, and rolled me over and over in the snow, I wasn't hurt, of course, but it took me so long to get my breath that I thought it was never going to come, and that I should suffocate, but after that first burst, the blizzard settled down to the regular variety, and we all felt more at home, but even at that, it was the worst one I ever saw in the north, and I've been there nine winters, what did you do, go back, no use trying to go back, the traveler said, because those whirlwinds had cut gullies across the snow in every direction so that our old trail was no use to us, we went ahead a bit, as far as we could, but soon realized that there was nothing to do but camp right where we were and wait for the blizzard to blow over, usually today's is enough for the average storm to let up a little, but it was not until the third day that there was any chance of starting, and even then it was almost as bad as could be for travel but I had to make a start then, why, asked Hamilton, who always wanted to know the details of everything, because we were running short of dog feed, and you can't let your dogs die of hunger, 
for then you can't get anywhere. But the blizzard had drifted everything and was still drifting, so that the snow was hard in some places and soft in others, the traveling was almost impossible, and you couldn't see twenty yards ahead. Then while the blizzard had filled the gullies made by the whirlwinds, the snow in them was not packed down as hard as the rest of the surface, and dogs and sled and Indian and myself would all go floundering into the drift, and it would be a tough pull to get the sled out again. That was a hard trip. The worst of it came when, without a bit of warning, without our even knowing where we were, the hard crust of the snow gave way beneath us, and the sled, the dogs, and myself fell headlong down a slope and into a stream of running water, the sled upside down, of course. How about the Indian? Asked the boy. He saved himself from going into the water, and it was a good thing that he did, for he was able to help in pulling us out. But, from one point of view, the accident was a help, for it told the Indian just where we were. There was only one stream of that size in that neighborhood, and until we found it, we were hopelessly lost. But from that time we knew that the settlement we were heading for was straight up the stream and all we had to do was to follow it, but it was a race for life, in order to get to camp before frozen cloven and various frostbites crippled me entirely, but how about the dogs, queried Hamilton, I should think it would be worse for them than for you, the Alaskan shook his head, a husky can stand just about anything in the way of cold, he said, and my leaders tussle and bully were a couple of wonders, only one of the dogs gave out, well, we made the camp finally, pretty well done up all round, the worst of it was, that when we come to unpack the sled we did it with an axe because everything was frozen solid the census pouch was missing, luckily there was no past work in it, only blank schedules, information papers, and things of that sort, so I made up the schedules on odd bits of paper and skins, as I told you, and the supervisor copied them on the schedule to send in and that schedule you have in your hand is the copy of those very pieces of skin. Hamilton glanced at the paper with redoubled interest. I suppose it was no use trying to get the pouch back. He said, I didn't think it would be. The Alaskan replied, but I tried to reach the place where the sled had been overturned, and each time the weather drove me back. On the third day I got a chance to go with some Eskimos with reindeer to a little settlement about 20 miles off. And so I went along and got the names there, coming back on a reindeer sled. That's the only time I ever felt like Santa Claus. I'm sure I don't look it. Illustration, to Eskimo settlements by reindeer. Census enumerator using half-wild animals when dog team was too exhausted to go farther. Courtesy of the Bureau of the Census. Hamilton looked at his spare figure and laughed. Mumber, he said. I don't think an artist would be likely to pick you for the part. How did you like the reindeer? Though, I've always wondered that they didn't use them more in Alaska. The government keeps a herd, doesn't it? Yes, was the reply. But that is more for fresh meat than for travel. A good reindeer is a crackerjack of an animal when he wants to be. But when he takes a streak to quit, it doesn't matter where it is or what you do to him. He won't go another step. A balky mule is an angel of meatness beside a reindeer. You can always make a mule see what you want him to do although the odds are that he won't do it even then but when a reindeer gets stubborn. Why? He just can't be made to understand anything. Yet I've read that they use them a good deal in Lapland, said the boy in surprise. They have domesticated them more thoroughly, I guess, the northerner replied. In time they may be worked up here in the same way. 
and when you consider how short a time the government has had to do what is already accomplished, it seems to me the result is wonderful. Of course, so far as traffic is concerned there are dogs enough, and they do the work in mighty good shape. How did you work back from the settlement which you had got to with such difficulty? The boy asked. I came back another way, in order to take in a little group of houses on a small pay creek, was the reply. But it was coming back from that trip, on the Coatic River, that I had quite a time. Although I was not the sufferer, we had been having a hard spell of weather. But there come a week when conditions on the trail were much better and we were reeling off the miles in great shape. I hadn't a place on my map for about 60 miles, when in the distance I saw a little hut, just in the fringe of some stunted cottonwoods and some scraggy willows, for we were not far from the timber limit. Billy, I called to the Indian, ever see that hut before? The Indian shook his head, but knowing that I wanted to see and count everybody in the district, he turned off the trail he said it was a trail but I couldn't see it and led the way to the hut. I went in and found a man lying on a couple of planks. Just about dead. He was one of the survivors of the wrecked steamer Philarleon, and had frozen all the fingers of both hands. Two or three were turning gangrenous, and one of these had got so dead that with his other crippled hand, he had sawed off the decomposing member with his pocket knife. One foot also was frozen and had turned black, but that afterwards recovered. What did you do for him? Asked the boy. Put him on the sled. Of course. The Alaskan answered and took him to the nearest settlement. I afterwards heard that a doctor happened into camp soon after I left, and got at his hurts right away, and that he was put back into fair condition all but the one finger. That's no tenderfoot's country up there. I wonder you stuck it out, said Hamilton. But then, he added a moment later, I can see how a fellow would hate to quit. It was tough, reluctantly admitted the narrator, and I'll tell you what I did. I'm not much of a hand with the pen. But right in the middle of the work I found a man who was going down the river, and I sat down and wrote a long letter to the supervisor. It was about as plain of a thing as I ever read. I had no reason to expect an answer, but by chance another party was coming up that way, and some weeks later I received a reply. What do you suppose he said? I haven't the least idea, answered the boy. His answer read just this way, I chose you because you were experienced in the treeless coast. Go to it. We are expecting you to make good. And, Hamilton said, his eyes shining, I'll bet you did. Chapter IX confronted with the black hand the side lights that Hamilton had received on the Alaskan enumeration had given him a greater zest for census work than ever, and he devoted not a little of his spare time to the study of conditions in the far north. Indeed, the lad became so enthusiastic about it that every evening, when he reached home, he worked out the route of the enumerator whose schedules he had edited during that day's work. He had secured the big geological reconnaissance map of Alaska for the purpose. Consequently, it was with a sense of regret that he faced the day when the last of the Alaskan schedules had been edited. What next? I wonder, Mr. Barnes, said Hamilton, laying down his pen and glancing round to his companion. How about Puerto Rico? They had a census this spring, too, didn't they? I imagine the Puerto Rico work is about done, his friend replied, at least I know that most of it came in some weeks ago, how are you on Spanish, I can read it all right, Hamilton answered, although I don't write particularly well, but are the schedules all in Spanish, yes, indeed, said the other, I don't think simple Spanish would bother me at all, 
Hamilton replied, I knew a chap who was going to the Philippines and he wanted someone to take up Spanish with him so that he wouldn't be alone in it, and to keep him company. I hammered at it too. But, after a bit, he joined a class. So I dropped out. Although I did study once in a while so as not to forget it altogether. Why don't you suggest that you know Spanish? Remarked Barnes. And perhaps you'll get the chance. Accordingly, when a little later, the final copy on the Alaskan schedules was turned in Hamilton asked concerning the Puerto Rican work, and ventured his slight familiarity with Spanish. We have several translators, replied the chief. But still, I suppose Mr. Ilavero can make you useful. I'll let you know later on. In a few moments he returned and beckoned to the boy, who followed him, with a word of farewell and thanks to the editor of the Alaskan schedules with whom he had enjoyed working greatly. Mr. Ilavero. The official said, introducing Hamilton, this is noble, I don't know what his Spanish is like, but I think he may be of some use to you in getting out the manufacturer's statistics, as he did some work along that line early in the year and has been with the census ever since. The editor smiled affably at the boy and shook hands with heartiness. The schedule work is all done, he said, but it will take some time preparing the report. It is going to be fuller than most of them because there is so much American capital invested in Puerto Rico that a detailed analysis will be of value. It is real editorial work. Then, Hamilton said, with a note of pleasure in his voice, I think, said the chief dryly, that Mr. Elavera will do the editorial work, as you call it. Since he is the editor, you are to assist him in preparing tables and matters of that kind. But no sooner had the bureau official gone than the Puerto Rican came forward. If you like, he said, we'll try to arrange some part of the work that you can do all yourself, writing and everything else, so that it will be real editorial work, and you'll be able to see your own writing in print. Hamilton thanked him fervently, and from that day on would have done anything for his new superior. This is a considerable change, Mr. Elavero, said Hamilton the following morning when he found himself at a table littered with maps and drawings of the island, with papers in Spanish and English, with reports and circulars containing pictures of the subtropical landscapes and towns of Puerto Rico. I have been doing nothing but Alaska for a month past. Too cold, the Puerto Rican cried, with a shrug of the shoulders. I was in Washington this last winter and I thought I should die of freezing. You are from Puerto Rico yourself, Mr. Elavero? I was never away from the island at all, was the reply. Never even on a steamboat until I came to the United States last autumn. I came to show the people in your Congress that the coffee growers of Puerto Rico need help. Why, Puerto Rican coffee is the finest in the world. The editor answered with a graphic gesture. And when Puerto Rico was Spanish we could sell in Europe at high prices. But now the European tariff against the United States includes us and our coffee is taxed so that we cannot sell it, and the American market is satisfied with Brazilian coffee, which is of a cheaper grade. Is coffee the principal crop down there? queried the boy. I notice that nearly half these papers and books deal with coffee plantations. It is still, but not as it once was. The Puerto Rican answered, sugar and tobacco are the other big crops. Coffee is easy to grow, isn't it? asked the boy. It doesn't want all the attention that cotton does. After a grove is well established, remember though we prune a great deal, but sugar, yes, that's not such an obstacle though, there is plenty of labor on the island, isn't the bulk of the island colored, remember, 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 answered the Puerto Rican, 
shaking his finger in emphatic denial, more than three-fifths are pure white, a much smaller proportion of Negroes than in some of your southern states. The Negroes were slaves, but Spain freed them in 1873. There was no war. He smiled. We are a most peaceful people. Illustration, gathering coconuts. Where the census taker in Puerto Rico had to wait for his figures until the head of the house climbed down. Courtesy of the Department of War. Not like our other accession from Spain. Hamilton commented. I mean the Philippines. You certainly couldn't call the Filipinos peaceful. It seems to me that they come just about as wild as they make them. Wild? You do not know the half. Said the excitable little editor. Who? despite the frequency of his gestures and the volubility of his explanations was busily working with diagrams the while. You know there was a census in Puerto Rico in 1899? I didn't until this morning. The boy answered, but as I see that most of these tables are compared with that year it is evident that there must have been. There was a census. The editor went on. After a pause during which he had been working over a column of figures, and my uncle was a supervisor. Mr. Gadden you know him? Only by name, Hamilton replied. He was in the Puerto Rico census, too. Then in 1903 he went to assist in the census of the Philippines. It was done by the War Department, because the fighting was hardly over. You think the census difficult? You should hear my uncle. The datos were not all stopped fighting, because just as soon as the Philippine Commission thought it safe, the census began. Did anyone get killed by hostile natives? Asked Hamilton. Sending a story. Several wounded. One badly. But no one killed. But, and he waggled a finger warningly, there were plenty of places where the census was only estimated. The blowpipe and the poison arrow are most dangerous. Even with the soldiers taking the census and going with other census men. It was very risky among the uncivilized tribes. They are really wild. Said Hamilton. I think the wildest people in the world. The most savage. Are in those jungles. My uncle had to go to the haunts of the pygmies. Pygmies! exclaimed Hamilton in surprise. I didn't know that the stars and stripes floated over pygmy tribes. I thought they were only in Africa. The Negritos are pygmies, answered the editor. Seldom over four feet ten inches for the man and the woman two or three inches shorter, they use their toes like fingers. They wear only a loincloth. Their hair is fuzzy like a black bush. And they seldom use fire, even for cooking. How do they live? Asked Hamilton. We have got used to thinking of the Red Indians as a part of the United States races. But the pygmies seem outlandish. Have they huts or do they live in caves? Or how? Nothing. Was the answer. A few have rough huts. But most of them wander in the forests. But where do they sleep? On the ground. I should think they would be afraid of wild beasts. The boy remarked. There are very few in the Philippines. Was the reply. How about snakes? Then. Queried the lad. They have to take chances on snakes. But you know a snake will scarcely ever strike unless alarmed or attacked. No snake will bite a sleeping man. Wild animals only attack for food. And man is left alone as much as possible. Haven't they pythons there? And a python could easily strangle and swallow a man. He could. But he doesn't. The Puerto Rican pointed out. Rabbits are more his size. Or a young fawn. The negritos are safe enough. As far as that goes. What do they live on? Fish. Mostly. Together with roots and berries. And they can get all they want with bow and arrow. Or with a stone. They can throw a stone as straight as you could shoot a bullet. We ought to import some of them for baseball pitchers. Suggested Hamilton with a grin. 
but it really must have been an awful job enumerating them, and when it comes to poisoned arrows, no thank you, I'd rather stick to old Kentucky, are there many of them, Mumber, was the reply, the Negrito is dying out, just as the aboriginal tribes all over the world are doing, there are only about 23,000 of the pygmies left now, but there are more natives than that in the Philippines, queried the boy, hundreds of thousands, you see there are really three different types of savages in the Philippines, according to the census reports, the aboriginal tribes are the Negritos, perhaps as close to primitive man as any people on earth, those are the ones I have been telling you about, and they are a race all to themselves, as different from the rest of the Filipinos as the Negro is from the white man, the true Filipinos are Malays, even the headhunters, certainly, there are Filipinos of two grades, apparently of two periods of migration, the first came and settled the islands away a long time back, driving the pygmies to the forests, and occupying the coasts themselves, these tribes, the Igros, the Ilongots, the Bilans, and so forth, are of the same general type as the headhunters of Borneo, and some, like the Ilongots to this day carry out the savage custom that no young man can be accepted in marriage until he has presented his bride with a human head, that is certainly savage, Hamilton agreed, one never thinks that sort of thing can be going on still, and certainly not under the American flag, it island though, the Puerto Rican replied, the third group, he continued, the Moros and so forth, are all Mohammedans, and they seem to have come to the islands after the semi-civilization of the Malay archipelago and its submission to Mohammedanism, the Moros are haughty and assume the air of conquerors, as the Igros drove the Negritos to the forest and thence to the wild interior, so the Moros drove the Igros, they are largely pure Malay, warlike and cruel, but shrewd and capable of culture, they assume an overlordship over all other tribes and their datos can generally enforce it, it seems strange, the boy said, to think of going among those savages and asking them the same questions that United States citizens were asked, writing the answers on the same kind of schedules, and counting these ferocious headhunters on a tabulating machine, of course, the editor reminded him, the Philippine census last time was taken by the War Department, although the Bureau is even now considering what will be the best way to attack the problem should it have to take the next Philippine census, as it probably will, but while it was primitive, the work wasn't so very different, they were able to use advanced schedules, for example, the boy stared, and his informant laughed outright, they were a little different, he explained, and it was during the enumeration of the Igros and similar tribes, it was soon found that they could count up to ten but no further, a certain number of them could grasp the idea of ten groups of ten, so a bundle of sticks was sent to each village and each man was made to cut notches in these sticks up to ten to show how many children, or pigs, or chickens he had, in some of the villages so my uncle told me, the supervisor had a branding iron made with which he had branded on the tally sticks the figure of a pig, or a house, or a chicken or whatever it might be, that is about as far back, I should think, as anyone could go, in the way of census taking, the boy said, I thought some of my upcountry negro farmers were barbaric especially when I came across some voodooism, but now I see I didn't know what barbarism meant, there's just as much savagery of a kind right in the heart of civilization, said the Puerto Rican, the slums of a great city are little less dangerous than a Philippine jungle, and you will do well to remember it. Why should I remember it especially? Asked Hamilton in surprise. Mr. Burns, who has been made an inspector, 
told me the other day that he expected to start soon for some of the larger cities, where reports of census frauds had been made, and that he thought he would take you along, if the director was willing. You mean the Mr. Burns I was with in New Haven? Yes, he seems to want to have you as his assistant in that work. That would be just splendid, said Hamilton, his eyes shining. But how about the Puerto Rican report, Mr. Elavero? I think I can manage it, the other replied, endeavoring to suppress a smile. And the chapter that you were working on is nearly done, isn't it? Yes, sir, the boy answered. I can finish it in a couple of days. That will be in plenty of time, the editor assured him. I don't think Mr. Burns intends to start until sometime next week. Before many days had passed Hamilton found the correctness of the Puerto Rican's information, for as he was busily engaged in compiling a big tabulation on the proportion of breadwinners per age and sex for one of the provinces of the island, his friend the special agent of manufacturers, under whom he had been at New Haven, strolled into the office. Why, Mr. Burns, the boy said delightedly, jumping up and shaking hands, I haven't seen you for ever so long. I haven't been in Washington more than 22% of the time, was the reply, and I'm going away on the 11.50 next Tuesday evening. Do you want to come along? But, the director said, if you wanted to come, I could take you. Where are we going, Mr. Burns? New York. What for? Seems to me. A lavero, said the inspector, turning to the Puerto Rican, that you've been teaching this lad to ask questions. Out of the four remarks he has made since I came in to have been questions, 50% is a high average. Well, I'll tell you, he added, turning to the boy. It's just this, there are always some cities that aren't satisfied with the census. I believe of the cities of over 30,000 inhabitants at this census there has been something like 9.81% protests, and the most necessary of these the Bureau investigates. Perhaps 10 or a dozen in the entire country get a recount. The Bureau doesn't officially recognize some of them but sends an inspector to look over the ground, and see if everything was done right. That's what we are going to do in New York. All right, said Hamilton briefly. You'll be on that train? Yes, Mr. Burns. The boy answered. 11.50 p. meters Tuesday. The opportunity was one which Hamilton had been coveting, for he felt that if he only had a chance to get at the city methods he would have covered almost the entire ground of the field work of the decennial census, and while he was sorry to leave his Puerto Rican friend, still the novelty appealed to him greatly, and in spite of his former chief's mathematical conversation, Hamilton was genuinely fond of him. I've been wondering, Mr. Burns, the boy said, as they stood in the great concourse of the Union Station at Washington whether there would not be a very large number of protests about census figures. People always seem to have such an exaggerated idea of the size of their own towns. There is to some extent, Burns replied, I think something like a hundred places filed protests in this last census. Then I read something, too, about census frauds, Hamilton said, soon after the taking of the census in which it was suggested that some enumerators who were paid per capita had bolstered up the figures in order to get more out of it. There was a little of that, the inspector said, but by far the greatest amount of fraud was due to the desire on the part of the inhabitants of the town or city to make the place appear larger and more important. Tacoma, Washington, was the most flagrant example of this. Why, they padded 32.527 names there and even when the census had made a recount they tried to repeat the same performance. 
complaining of the results and demanding a second recount. Was this granted? It was, the inspector replied, largely in order that the Census Bureau itself might have an opportunity to check the correctness of its methods. The second recount was performed by expert statisticians and with extreme care. And how did it come out? The boy asked. It substantiated the first recount in every way. It was, indeed, a wonderful object lesson in showing how small is the margin of error in the United States Census. But was there really much fraud among the enumerators and supervisors? Mr. Burns, with perhaps one exception, no criticism could be made of the supervisors. But you can't have 70.000 enumerators chosen for temporary work and expect perfection. There was quite a little overcounting caused by entering hotel transients as having permanent residences by numbering citizens both at business and home addresses and the constant difficulty of the floating population. Deliberate frauds were very few, where trouble was found it was usually discovered to have been due to the unauthorized activity of committees of boards of trade or other commercial organizations, giving lists of names already to be copied on the enumerator's schedule, which the latter did not take the time and trouble to verify. Then do you think the net result of the census is to make it seem that there are more people in the country than really are here? Mumber, the inspector replied confidently, the total figures are an understatement, probably of about 1%, maybe a little less, but certainly not much more, I think that's mighty close, Hamilton said, but do towns never wish to have small numbers announced, there was only one case, so far as I know, the other replied, in which a businessmen's association wrote and demanded a recount on the ground that the figures were too big. The reason was a dispute about raising city salaries when a certain population mark was reached. And now, Noble, he continued, moving on toward the train platform, we want to look into the question of statistics in New York carefully. Personally I believe the work has been as well done as possible, and I know the directory is satisfied, but one or two little matters have come up, which one looking into, being on a midnight train. Hamilton had no chance for further talk with the inspector. But it was quite a homecoming when, after passing through the great tunnels under the Hudson River, he found himself next morning among the skyscrapers of New York again. I suppose everyone feels the same way about his own town, Hamilton said. But it always seems to me that you feel the bigness of things more in New York than anywhere. In Washington there always seems lots of time to do everything you want. But New York is just made up of hustle. You've got to know what you want in this city and you've got to do it in a hurry before someone else gets there first. New York certainly is hurried and restless, I can't say I like the noise and the skyscrapers, replied Burns, but it's great the way those buildings tower up, the boy exclaimed enthusiastically, the low house.